Yes, moms, we do celebrate you this morning. And uh, we pray that today would be a really special and blessed day for you. And so uh, thank you for your service. I know these uh, past uh, couple months especially have been very difficult for uh, for many of our moms as our normal routines have been disrupted and you're working so hard with uh, homeschooling your kids and just providing uh, for your families. It's just been a difficult season. And so uh, again today, we celebrate you. We thank you. We love our moms. I want to pray for you this morning, moms, and uh, and so I'm going to invite your families. If you're there with your mom, if you're present with your mom this morning, I want to encourage you to gather around her, and uh, I would just encourage you to put your hand on her, uh, put your hand on her shoulder, wherever she's sitting, or maybe on her knee. Uh, gather around your moms right now in your living room, in your family room, wherever you're watching. For those of you who maybe aren't present with your mom, I want you to, to just join us in spirit, praying for your mother this morning. Let's just ask God's blessing over our mothers, and then we'll also pray for our sermon this morning as we turn again to God's Word in the book of Revelation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Uh, we thank you for that great time of worship we just shared in. And we thank you especially today for our moms. On this Mother's Day, Lord, we ask your blessing over all of the mothers in our church. We thank you, God, for their faithful service to their families. We thank you for the sacrifices they make on behalf of, of their families, Lord. Would you just please bless them and encourage them today? Remind them of the great calling that you've given them. Remind them of the, the beautiful mission that you've given them to, to, to steward the lives that you've entrusted to them. Lord, help our moms and bless their hearts this day. And Lord, we also ask that you would help us now as we turn to your word. We thank you, God, for the powerful truths that we've been able to study in the book of Revelation so far. And today, God, as we turn again to your fourth letter to the church in Thyatira, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to this powerful truth, uh, this powerful word that you shared with this church. May we be blessed and encouraged. May we be uh, taught and exhorted to follow your ways. And Lord, uh, if there's anything in us that your word needs to speak to, to, to refine, to purify, to, to lead us back into faithfulness to you, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal that to us and convict us and lead us and guide us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have now of studying your word together. We ask your blessing on our sermon now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 through 3, looking at Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. These were letters that Jesus revealed to the Apostle John as he was on an island in exile by the Roman Empire. Uh, John had been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he received this revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of this revelation from the Lord, the Lord gave John these letters to give specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey, letters for their encouragement, but letters that were in to instruct and guide the church for all times. And as we've seen in recent weeks, these letters uh, provide some really powerful teaching and encouragement that is really still so very applicable to our lives today. Today we're going to be looking at the fourth letter, the letter to the church in Thyatira. This morning I want to begin by sharing an interesting story with you. Uh, this past February, 
just a couple months ago, I had the opportunity to attend a pastor's conference down in Austin, Texas. You might recognize the, the guy on the screen with me here in the picture, uh, our former senior pastor, Pastor Rick Stanghelly. Rick and I were at this pastor's conference for the Free Church together, and uh, after spending two, three days in Austin with a number of other pastors, we had a few hours of free time before our flight home that afternoon, and so we decided to drive down to San Antonio, Texas, to visit the, his <clears throat> the historical location, the site known as the Alamo. The Alamo probably familiar with was one of the most significant battles in the history of America. It was certainly one of the most uh, important battles in what is known as the Texas Revolution, the revolution for the, the liberation of Texas from the Mexican Empire. Well, the Texas Revolution was a, a, a war that lasted only six months, from 1835 to 1836. And while many people believe that the Alamo was the, the uh, powder keg that kicked off the Texas Revolution, that wasn't really the beginning of the revolution, but it was the battle that rallied the people of Texas to the cause for their freedom. On March 6, 1836, General Santa Ana and his Mexican soldiers overran the Alamo, killing 200 Texans inside. And that travesty became the rallying cry for the people of Texas. Remember the Alamo. It was a little over a month later when the decisive battle for the liberation of Texas would take place. In April, April 21st, 1836, the battle known as San Jacinto was fought on marshy plains just outside of present-day Houston, Texas. There, in a, in a battle that literally would shock the world, the Texans, led by General Sam Houston, would decisively defeat the Mexican army, led by General Santa Ana, who was known as the Napoleon of the West, a, a great general, a great leader of men. It was, a, it was an incredible victory that the Texans won that day uh, at the Battle of San Jacinto, because the Texans were outnumbered over two to one on that battlefield. General Santa Ana had overwhelming numbers. He had a far better trained army. And yet, when the battle began in the evening of April 21st, the Texans overran the Mexican position, defeating General Santa Ana and his men in less than 18 minutes. It was one of the quickest battles in American history and one of the most important battles in American history bringing about the liberation of Texas. People studying that battle asked the question, how could this great general, Santa Ana, be, be overrun by a, a Texas army made up of volunteers, of farmers and ranchers? And, and here's this great general who had this well-trained army. Well, friends, the reason the Texans were able to beat Santa Ana on that day is because Santa Ana had dropped his guard. He, he had failed to remain vigilant. You see, he expected the battle to take place at sunrise that morning of April 21st. And when the Texans didn't attack, the, the general began to slowly let down his guard. 
His men, as the day wore on, began to, to let down their guard. And by the afternoon, General Santa Anna and his men were, were tired from spending the long day on guard in the sun. And, and so Santa Anna ordered his troops to retire and, and to take naps and to go and bathe in the nearby waters. And, and the Mexican troops amazingly let down their guard. They failed to remain vigilant. And that evening, as Sam Houston led his soldiers across the battlefield, they literally surprised Santa Ana and the Mexican soldiers and overwhelmed them in under 18 minutes. It was an incredible battle, all because the Mexicans had failed to remain vigilant. Now, friends, I share this story with us this morning because losing vigilance is not just a risk for armies, but it's a risk for churches, too. It's a risk that we see very clearly displayed in the church that Jesus writes to in his fourth letter in the book of Revelation, the church in Thyatira. Thyatira was a church that had failed to remain vigilant. They were a church that, for all the good things involved there, they had dropped their guard. They had failed to remain vigilant, and they had allowed a false teacher to creep into their midst that was leading many of their people astray and bringing down their church, leading them into infidelity against the Lord. Well, we're going to look at the story of the church in Thyatira and Jesus' message to them this morning. I want to invite you to join me in reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And let's see what Jesus has to say to this fourth church there in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, this is one of the most important letters of Jesus' seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. The church in Thyatira. Here in Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, we find some important instructions and teaching that really has tremendous application for our lives as well today. I want to highlight three pieces of Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira this morning. 
pieces of his letter to them that can serve to, to guide us today and encourage us today. Number one, in his letter to the church in Thyatira, we find a church that Jesus commends for their faithfulness. Jesus commends the Thyatiran church for their faithfulness. Now, the city of Thyatira was a city that was situated about 40 miles south of the city of Pergamum, the, the letter that we looked at last week. Pergamum, that church that was struggling with accommodation to the culture around them and compromise. Well, we're going to see that some of these same situations were facing the church in Thyatira as well. The situation in Thyatira, it was an interesting city. It was a blue-collar town. It was a town known for its various trades. It was a town known for its its wool workers, its tanners, its potters, its bronzesmith, its linen workers, uh, it, it, its makers of dye. In fact, you may recall the, the book of Philippians, uh, the very first Christian that Paul led to the Lord in the church in Philippi was a woman named Lydia, who was actually from Thyatira. We learn in the book of Acts, in the story of Paul's uh, planting of the church in Philippi, that Lydia was a merchant of dye from Thyatira, and she became a follower of Jesus there in Philippi. It's very interesting. Lydia may have gone back to her hometown and could have been instrumental in planting this church in Thyatira. But but this was a blue-collar town, a town known for, for its trades, for, for its hard work and its various crafts. Central to life in Thyatira were the various trade guilds or, or unions that dominated civic life. And membership in these trade guilds would have been expected for anyone who was working in these various trades. And one of the difficulties facing the Christians in Thyatira is that membership in these trade guilds would require them to worship the various gods that were overseeing the various trades. All of the different unions had their own God that, that they worshipped and asked for favor over their work. And so these Christians would have been pressured to participate in these idolatrous activities as a part of their, their work life. Now, the city of Thyatira is actually the smallest city that Jesus writes to in his seven letters. And as the case is, being the smallest city, it's very likely that this church in Thyatira was also one of the smaller churches in Asia Minor. But it's very interesting, friends. Here we find this letter written to this small city, to a church that was very likely a small church, and yet Jesus writes his longest letter to the church in Thyatira. Why is that? Well, friends, I think one lesson we can learn from that reality is that all churches matter to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a church of 10,000 or a church of 10. It doesn't matter if you're an urban church or a rural church, large church, small church. All churches matter to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that here in his, his passionate words to the church in Thyatira. Even in this small city and a small church, Jesus cared very deeply for the state of their spiritual walk with him. And so he writes this important letter to the church in Thyatira. Jesus opens his letter to these Thyatiran Christians by again reminding this church who it is that's addressing them. 
In verse 18, Jesus opens his letter. He says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, Jesus's self-description here is especially important in light of the message that he's about to share with these Christians. Jesus opens up by reminding them that it is the Son of God who is writing to them. And this was an important declaration because there in Thyatira, the chief god worshipped by the people of that city was the god Apollo, who was the son of Zeus, the king of the gods. The people of Thyatira would worship the one that they believed was the son of God, Apollo. And yet Jesus opens his letter reminding them of who the true son of God is, the living son of God, not a worthless stone idol, an image, but a living savior, a living Lord, the true son of God. He he declares that he is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And here Jesus is reminding this church of the penetrating power of his vision, of his omniscient gaze, how nothing escapes our Lord's view and vision. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing remains hidden from the Lord. Some of you young people watching this morning, maybe you know that look your mom gives you. I remember growing up, uh, my brother and I, we used to call it the look. And we knew that when mom gave us that look, she'd give us that look and we knew, we knew she knew something was up. We knew that we were going to get it because nothing escaped mom's vision. We saw that look. Well, that's the same idea that Jesus is conveying here by talking about the eyes like a flame of fire. Nothing escapes our Lord's vision. He sees everything. He then goes on to describe himself as the one with, with feet of bronze. And this image of Jesus and these bronze feet of his is an image that's supposed to conjure up a, a picture of his strength, of the power Jesus has to tread upon his enemies. And all of these descriptions, friends, were significant in light of what was happening in Thyatira. What exactly was the Lord's message to this church in his fourth letter here in the book of Revelation? We find Jesus' message in verse 19. It begins where Jesus reveals a, a word of encouragement to these Thyatiran Christians. He starts with a word of encouragement. We, we find here at the beginning of verse 19 that this church was a faithful church. He, he opens up, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Here Jesus praises this church, a faithful church that had been working hard on behalf of the Lord. He, he says he knows their love. The word for love there is agape. It's a selfless love, a sacrificial love. It's a love that overflowed in, in faith towards Jesus Christ, but also service of their fellow man. This was a great church, a hard-working church of love, faith, servants, and endurance. You know, friends, if you've ever moved into a new community as a Christian, one of the first things you do is you go looking for a new church. And I'll tell you something, if you were moving into Thyatira 2,000 years ago, I mean, this is a church you would want to attend. This is the kind of church you want to be a part of. I want, I want to be a part of a, a faithful church, a church characterized by love and service and, and endurance. And what a word of encouragement that the Lord gives this church. 
We, we also see here in verse 19 that this was a growing church. He, he says in the second half of verse 19, he says, and I know that your later works exceed the first. In other words, this was a church that was doing more later down the road than they had even done when they were first planted, when they first started. Friends, this was a church that hadn't grown complacent. This was a church that refused to become stagnant. This this was a church that was hungry for even more. They were pressing on in faith for the cause of Christ. What a blessing. What a blessing it must have been for these Christians to receive this word of recognition and commendation from our Lord. To, to be praised for their faithfulness as a church, for their growth as a church. I mean, this is what we want to hear from our Savior and Lord. This is the kind of encouragement I think any of us would long for in our life. To be commended by the Lord for our faithfulness, that, that our later works even exceed the first, that we're growing, we're striving for more, we're, we're, we're doing more for the sake of the gospel. This is something, friends, that all of us should desire. I talked to a brother from our church here recently and found out that he was retiring here at the end of the year. And, you know, it was very interesting talking to this friend who who is facing his retirement soon. You know, as I talked to him, I, I discovered very quickly that he doesn't plan on just disappearing in his retirement and going off and sitting in a fishing boat somewhere. He, he's not planning on, you know, moving to the beach permanently and just disappearing. No, he is excited about his retirement because it's going to give him more time to serve the Lord. And he went on for minutes sharing about the different ministries he was excited about participating in and, and ways that he could serve here at church and talking about different men that he had envisioned discipling in his retirement. This was a brother who has the goal of one day standing before Jesus and having Jesus say to him, your latter works exceeded your first. Friends, that's the kind of goal that all of us should long for and strive for in our lives to have the Lord commend us with that kind of word of encouragement. And not just us as individuals, but for us as churches. I mean, what a goal. Think about it, Lakes Free. What a goal for us as a church to have the Lord, when he returns, say to us as a church, your latter works exceeded even your first. You know, this church has been around for about 35 years, and God has used Lakes Free in some incredible ways. But you know something, friends? I want our church to be a church that where for the next 30 years, our faithfulness to the Lord exceeds even that of our first 30 years. You know, how great would it be for the Lord to say that your latter works, Lakes Free, even exceeded your first? You know, that's one of the reasons why our elder board recently decided to go forward with our renovation project. Why are we doing this renovation project? We're doing it, friends, because we believe that the best is yet to come. We believe that God is not finished with our church. We believe that God has put us here in the Chisago Lakes area to be a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our community, to proclaim the good news that there's a God in heaven who loves this community. 
and to share the hope of the gospel with them. Friends, I believe that the best is yet to come, and I believe that if we as a church continue to pursue fidelity to the Lord, faithfulness, love, service, endurance, like the Thyatiran Christians 2,000 years ago, that we too can be a church where the Lord says, your latter works even exceeded the first. What, what a blessing and privilege that would be. Would you join me, friends, in praying for that for our church? Let, let's pray that God would give us the grace and the passion and the enthusiasm to continue to serve him wholeheartedly for another 30 plus years for the sake of Jesus and his glory. Well, Jesus begins with this great word of encouragement. But friends, as we've seen already in our series here in the book of Revelation, like with some of the other churches, while this was a great church, not all was well here in Thyatira. And so Jesus moves from this commendation to the church to, to secondly, we find a church that Jesus chastises for their failure. How had they failed? I mean, in spite of all of the good that was happening there, how had they failed? Well, we see it here in verse 20. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, friends, this is a very interesting dilemma that we see here in the church in Thyatira. You might remember Jesus' first letter in our series to the churches in Revelation, the churches in Asia Minor. The, the first letter Jesus wrote was to the church in Ephesus. And here, in his fourth letter to Thyatira, we find a church that had the exact opposite problem from the church in Ephesus. You remember what the church in Ephesus' problem was? The Christians in Ephesus, they were a church that were contending faithfully for the truth. They were a church that was holding fast to sound doctrine, rejecting false teaching. But they were a church that had lost their first love. They had failed to hold fast to love. Here in Thyatira, we see the exact opposite problem. This was a church commended for their love exceeding in their works of love. But here in Thyatira, they had failed to remain vigilant for the truth. They had let their guard down. They had accommodated the culture around and compromised. And they had allowed a false teaching into their church. And in failing to remain vigilant, Jesus tells us here that they had tolerated a false prophetess a woman false teacher who had come into the church who was preaching a false gospel, thereby resulting in a false lifestyle that many of these Thyatiran Christians had been seduced into, practicing idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, now, what exactly was going on here in our passage with this woman named Jezebel, this false prophetess, and, and, and how was she leading the church in Thyatira astray? Well, this is the interesting thing about this. We don't know many of the specifics about this Jezebel. But we can deduce a few things from Jesus' description here, as well as what we know about the name Jezebel. The name Jezebel comes from the Old Testament. And in the books of First and Second Kings, we find that Jezebel was one of the most wicked women in all of history. 
certainly one of the most wicked women in biblical history. She was the wife of King Ahab. She led King Ahab astray into sin, into the pursuit of idolatry. She, she, through King Ahab, led the people of Israel into the pursuit of idolatry and the, the worship of Baal, one of the chief rivals of Yahweh in the ancient world. She seduced the people of Israel into worshiping Baal. She, she was a wicked woman who killed the prophets of God. She, she was a wicked woman who killed an innocent man named Naboth, trying to steal from him his vineyard for her husband. This was a woman that the Bible has nothing good to say about. And here in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church in Thyatira and says that this Jezebel woman had seduced this church into sexual immorality, into idolatry. Now, now this false prophet here in, in, in the first century in Thyatira, her name probably wasn't Jezebel. That's probably a, a code word, a nickname that Jesus gives this false prophet. But Jesus uses this name intentionally because this woman, this false prophet in Thyatira was a wicked woman. She was an evil woman. And how had she seduced the church in Thyatira, leading them astray? Well, friends, again, we don't know the specifics, but what we do know about Thyatira was it was a city dominated by its trade guilds, by its unions. And for these Christians to be employed there in Thyatira would require them to be a part of one of these unions or trade guilds. Each of these trade guilds had their own patron deity that that union would worship. And as a result, they would meet regularly in, in feasts and celebrations and, and they would perform rituals and sacrifices in honor of their patron gods. And so for these Christians to be employed there in Thyatira would mean making the choice between fidelity to the Lord or participating in the idolatrous practices of their trade guilds, which often included sexual immorality. And so these Christians were under tremendous pressure to choose between their livelihood and the Lord. This false prophet Jezebel there in Thyatira probably had come into this church proclaiming a false gospel that said, it doesn't matter what you do externally in the world as long as internally your heart is right with God. And so she was probably encouraging these Thyatiran Christians to, to just go along to get along. To, to just do what the world around them was doing because, again, it doesn't matter what we do in the body, what we do in the flesh. All that matters is that we know Jesus and have a spiritual relationship with Jesus. And so these Christians in Thyatira had begun to had begun to compromise. They had begun to accommodate the culture around them as a result of this Jezebel's teaching, thereby beginning to engage in idolatry and sexual immorality. Friends, this church should have known better. The Apostle Paul, a few decades earlier, had warned the church. In 2 Timothy, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming. Friends, listen to this. Paul says a few decades earlier, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, this is exactly what had taken place in Thyatira. These people with their itching ears, wanting to to not have the pressure of choosing between their livelihood and the Lord, had followed this false prophetess into accommodation and compromise. They had dropped their guard. They had failed to remain vigilant for the truth, as Paul had exhorted the churches earlier. And now this false prophetess was leading them into accommodation, into compromise. I ran into a similar circumstance to this a number of years ago when my father and I were teaching over in Japan. Some of the some of the churches there in Japan, one of the big issues they were facing about a decade ago when we were there in Japan was a very similar false teaching taking place. False teachers there in the church in Japan who were encouraging the Japanese Christians to participate in the Shinto rituals of their culture worshiping the kami, the the Shinto gods in Japan. You see, many of the businesses there in Japan are are very devoted to their their rituals and, and wanting to remain pure as a business in the eyes of the Shinto gods. And so they will often gather all of their employees and participate in different Shinto rituals to, to purify their companies to receive the blessings of the gods. And these Christians in Japan were wrestling with this. And there were many in the churches who were encouraging these Christians to just go along to get along, participate in these Shinto rituals. It doesn't really matter what you do outside as long as inside your heart is right with Jesus. But friends, you need to understand something. When when we compromise with the world, whether it's in Thyatira or Japan or in Lindstrom, When we compromise with the world, we end up losing our distinction from the world. And this is why Jesus takes this so seriously. The church, friends, the word church in the Greek is ekklesia. It literally means the called out ones. We as the church friends are the called out ones. We are to be called out from the world around us. We are to, to shine brightly and display something different and unique from what the world around us sees every day. But friends, when a church loses its distinction by accommodating with the culture around it, by participating in, in, in the idolatrous practices of the culture around it, whether in Thyatira or Japan or in Minnesota, Whatever your idolatry is in your particular culture, maybe here in the West, it's materialism. Maybe here in the West, it's, it's participating in, in other activities above church. Maybe here in the West, it's things like pornography and lust and, and, uh, the pursuit of pleasure, right? Whatever our false gods are, those things that we accommodate lead us to lose our distinction from the world around us. And we no longer appear to be the called out ones. We end up looking just like the culture around us. And so Jesus takes this compromise, this accommodation very seriously. In fact, we see the the seriousness that the Lord takes this issue. Uh, We see it in verses 21 through 23 as, as Jesus offers a very serious rebuke here to this Jezebel and her followers. Let me read in verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Wow! Friends, this is serious business. Jesus is going to bring judgment against this false teacher, this Jezebel. He's going to bring judgment against her followers, her children. He's going to throw her onto a sickbed. He's going to cause her to become sick. He says some of her children will even die. These are her followers. They'll even die as a result of their rebellion. Now, some of you might be thinking, is this for real? I, I mean, does God really do this kind of thing? You know, for many people... Reading Jesus' words here, this, this might be a shocking revelation. You, you see, in, in American Christianity especially, there are many people today who have a very shallow understanding of the nature and character of God. For many churches today, all they teach about Jesus is his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And friends, those are certainly part of who Jesus is. But the Bible also tells us that, that Jesus is a God of holiness and righteousness and justice. And, and so while he is a God that is patient with sin and who offers us amazing grace, he will not tolerate sin forever. And he will rise in judgment against sin. And we see that here in the situation with Jezebel and her followers. Jesus is about to judge them with sickness with death. It's very interesting. A lot of people in our culture today say, oh, what? Jesus doesn't do this kind of thing. J Jesus just loves everybody. Friends, Jesus does love everybody, but he will not tolerate our sin forever. I, it was very interesting. Even this past week, I was listening to the Christian radio station here in the Twin Cities, and one of the radio announcers came on in between songs and was talking about the coronavirus. And and she was talking about how God doesn't cause things like the coronavirus. Well, even my daughter, Addie, who was riding in the car with me, looked at me and said, Dad, that doesn't sound right. It's not right. I, I, I read a progressive Christian author I follow on Twitter this week who, who made the comment that the God I believe in doesn't cause plagues and pandemics. Really? Really? H have you read your Bible lately? Friends, if you read your Bibles, what we find from beginning to end is that God does bring judgment upon sinful people through plagues and pandemics. We could turn to Exodus 12, for example, where God strikes down all of the firstborn sons of Egypt. We, we could turn to Numbers 25, where God sends a plague against his own people, the Israelites, killing 24,000 of them for their sin of idolatry and immorality. We, we could turn to Acts chapter 5 where God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says to the Corinthian Christians that many of them had gotten sick and some of them had even died. Why? Because they had been participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Friends, from beginning to end in the Bible, we see that God is a God that will bring judgment. It's very interesting. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Friends, what does all things mean? It means all things. God has a plan and purpose in all things. And sometimes 
The all things includes divine judgment against sin and rebellion. And sometimes that divine judgment takes the form of sickness, plagues, and death. Now, I'm going to tell you something, friends. It's not our place to label specific instances of sickness, disease, and death as God's judgment. Okay? We can't know that. Is God judging individuals or nations or the world with a particular plague or disease? We can't know that in our finite, limited human understanding. But to say that God doesn't judge sin in this way is to deny the plain teachings of Scripture. God judges sin. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, that one of the reasons why he judges sin this way is to lead us to repentance, to to lead us to a deeper pursuit of fidelity and faithfulness to him. God chastises those he loves because like a good father, he treats us like sons. He disciplines us to bring us back into conformity with his will. And we see this here in Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira. Look at the goal of the Lord's discipline here in verse 23 of our letter to the church in Thyatira. Jesus says, I will strike all of her children dead, her followers, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Friends, what, what is the goal of this discipline that the Lord was going to mete out against Jezebel and her followers? God wants his people to know that when we call him Lord, he expects us to live as if he is our Lord. You know, there's a lot we can learn from Jesus' instructions here to the church in Thyatira. We need to remain vigilant. And when we fall into sin, in accommodation, in compromise... We need to repent, or we too might risk God's judgment. Thirdly, here in Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, we find a church that Jesus commissions to hold fast. He commissions them to hold fast. In verses 24 through 25, Jesus says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. It's very interesting this past week. In our staff meeting, Beth Phillips said to me, Pastor Jason, I bet you're going to love preaching on this passage this week. And friends, absolutely. Why? Because here Jesus tells this church to hold fast. Friends, what is one of the things we say most often around here at Lakes Free Church? One of our famous phrases here at Lakes Free Church is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ We hold fast to the gospel. It's our main thing. And here Jesus concludes his letter to the church in Thyatira, telling them to hold fast to what you have until I come. What's he telling them to hold fast to? To hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. It's our calling as Christians. And I love how Jesus puts this here in verse 24. He says, I do not lay on you any other burden. No other burden. Just hold fast to the gospel. Friends, you want to know what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world? That's it right there in verse 24. Jesus says, I lay on you no other burden. 
See, religion is about what men and women do through their good works, through their rituals, through their sacrifices, through their money, trying to earn God's favor. But you see, biblical Christianity Christianity is about what God has done for us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid the price. He purchased our salvation. And when we trust in his amazing grace by faith alone, he promises us forgiveness and new life with him. See, Christianity is not about what we do to please God. It's about what God has done for us. And so Jesus tells us here, I don't lay on you any other burden. Just hold fast to what you have until I come. See, friends, true Christianity is all about the gospel. It's the gospel that saves us. It's the gospel that transforms us. It's the gospel that spurs us on wanting to live in greater faithfulness to the Lord. It's the gospel that gives us hope for eternity and an everlasting future with our Savior and King Jesus. It's all about the gospel. And the gospel is all about Jesus. Friends, hold fast. Hold fast to the gospel. That's the Lord's admonition here to the church. And to the one who holds fast, to the one who conquers, Jesus offers rewards once again here at the end of his letter to the church in Thyatira. In verses 26 through 29, we find the rewards that Jesus offers. He says, to the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Here, Jesus offers two great rewards, two promises to those who conquer, who remain faithful, who hold fast the gospel until the end. He says, number one, I promise you my authority. He promises us his authority. He, he says here in verse 26 that we will rule over the nations. And here, Jesus' words are an echo of what we read in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. That great messianic prophecy about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. When Jesus will rule and reign over the nations of this world for a thousand years. And here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, Jesus says, We, the church, his faithful people who hold fast, will rule and reign with him. What a great promise that is. But then secondly, at the end of our letter here, Jesus says to the one who conquers, he gives us the assurance of his presence. In verse 28, Jesus says, and I will give him the morning star. Friends, if you conquer, if you hold fast to the end, Jesus promises you the morning star. What is the morning star? Friends, the answer to that question is found at the book, at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Friends, when Jesus promises these Christians in Thyatira that he will give them the morning star, what is he promising? He's promising himself. He's promising them his presence, his unfailing presence for all of eternity. How many of you have ever been camping before and you spend the night sleeping outside under the stars? I remember back when I was in college and seminary, when I was working at a camp up in the mountains of 
California near Yosemite National Park. We would go out and we would camp out under the stars at night. We would build a large campfire to keep us warm. As the night would go on and we'd fall asleep, that campfire would die out. And even in our warm sleeping bags, as the cold night went on, we would be shivering cold. We would be waiting for the morning, the breaking of the dawn, the arrival of the sun to warm us. And friends, when that sun arose and the light came out and the sun's rays began to warm us up, oh my goodness, it was such an incredible feeling. When Jesus promises us the morning star, friends, this is the feeling. This is the experience that will be ours for all of eternity. Christ promises us the morning star, his eternal presence, his warmth, his love. It will be with us always. What a great promise that is for us to hold fast, to, to an encouragement to hold fast to the Lord until the end. You know, there's a lot we can learn from this church in Thyatira. It's a church that had done so many good things on behalf of the Lord, and yet they had dropped their guard. They had failed to remain vigilant. Friends, let's not be that kind of a church. Let's be a church that pursues the Lord in faithfulness, in love, in service, in endurance, but a church that holds fast to the truth to the very end so that we too might be among those who conquer and so that we might be a shining light to our culture, that we might display the, the uniqueness and hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that conquers, that holds fast to the end. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful words that you shared with your church in Thyatira. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be blessed as we uh, receive these words and learn from them. God, may we too here at Lakes Free be a church that remains vigilant, that stands fast until the end, that holds fast to the gospel. May we look to those great rewards and promises to all those who conquer as our source of encouragement and inspiration. And Lord, we pray that when you come to see us again one day, when you return for your people, you might say of us here at Lakes Free that your latter works even exceeded the first. What a joy and privilege that would be. Help us to live with that goal in mind. We thank you, Lord, for this teaching this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I hope you've been blessed as we've had the opportunity to study God's Word together. I want to remind you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, you can join us here at lakesfree.org for our pastor study. We're going to dive into this passage a little bit further and deal with some issues that we didn't have time to cover this morning. If you have questions about our sermon from this morning, you can email me at jasoncarlson at lakesfree.org, and, and I would love to try to address some of the questions that you might have from our teaching today. But I want to leave you now with this benediction from Hebrews chapter 12 verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, hold fast. I love you, church. Have a blessed week. You're in my prayers. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. 
I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.